0: I have
1: always known that one day I would return to these streets to tell the story of the man who lost his soul and his name among the shadows of a Barcelona trapped in a time of ashes and silence. These are pages written in the flames of the city of the damned, words etched in fire on the memory of the one who returned from among the dead with a promise nailed to his heart and a curse upon his head. The curtain rises, the audience falls silent, and before the shadow lingering over their destiny descends upon the set, a chorus of pure souls takes the stage with a comedy in their hands and the blessed innocence of those who, believing the third act to be the last, wish to spin a Christmas story, unaware that once the last page is turned, the poison of its words will drag them slowly but inexorably towards the heart of darkness. Julian Carax, The Prisoner of Heaven, Editions de la Lumière, Paris,
0: 1992. Carlos Ruiz Zafón is the author of the Fog Trilogy and Marina. His novel The Shadow of the Wind first appeared in English in 2004. His novel The Angel's Game, set in the same world as The Shadow of the Wind, was released in English in 2009. His newest novel in the same sequence is The Prisoner of Heaven. Thank you for joining me, Carlos. Hi, how are you? This is such a wonderful story, and I was so captivated by the way that you've released the sequence of novels set in this same world. I'd like you to talk a little bit about developing this world in your mind and then watching the stories unfold and kind of plucking them out of thin air. Well, my idea was when I started working on Shadow of the Wind, I already
1: knew that what I wanted to do was to create some kind of a labyrinth of a stories, a labyrinth made of many stories, many tales, the structures in four books. And these four novels, which would be standalone stories on their own, but they would be heavily connected and, and, and intertwined, so to speak, would provide like four different doors of entry into this labyrinth. So ideally, this is a story that was going to be some kind of an organic ongoing process in which the stories feed into each other would not be necessarily like a serial or... or or a sequential story but more like a chinese box of tales in which every time you enter one of the stores in any order you may read first the third book and then the first and then the second or the second and the third or the one or the fourth you can take whatever journey you want but this labyrinth every time you take this journey Your experience as a reader of the story changes as altered. Each one of the books makes you reinterpret the other books in a different way. So you start seeing the events you have read about or adventures you have lived with the characters from a different perspective. And when you thought that you had figured out exactly what was going on, you realize that you had not because there's another twist and then there's another twist. And one story leads you to the other. If you just read one of these books, you will find a self-contained standalone story. If you keep on exploring the labyrinth of books, you'll see, you'll see all this kind of multi-angle deconstruction of the story. And th- this was something that intrigued me, the notion of trying to create something like this. So I decided to write first what to me was the probably the easiest point of entry into the story, which was Shadow of the Wind. After Shadow of the Wind came The Angel's Game, which is kind of a detour into the darkest areas of the of this quartet of novels. And now with The Prisoner of Heaven, what the readers are going to find is that finally all the threads, all the pieces in this complex chess game are starting to, to come together. So you finally get the sense that you reach the bottom of the rabbit hole and that you really know what the play is all about, because until now you didn't really know, although you thought you knew. And of course, there's still more to come, because even though by the end of The Prisoner of Heaven, you feel that now I know what the hell is going on in here. In the fourth book, the the, the the labyrinth will rearrange itself again, and finally, all the implications there are in, in the four stories will become evident, and this kind of organic Chinese box of tales of stories will finally click like a, an enormous clockwork
0: mechanism, and the whole thing will be whole. One of the things that I really love about these books is they take us straight to the joy of reading, which isn't just reading a story once, but re-experiencing the story um, again and again. That's what our favorite books, we go back and read them and reread them and get the same story every time. And what I like about these books is they take into account, before you even started composing them, the act of reading and storytelling and experiencing story itself? Very much so. I
1: think that one of the things that these novels try to do is is to communicate the the pleasure of reading, the pleasure of literature, the joy in enjoying the beauty of the language, the work of style, all of these elements. And pretty much there are books that have they aspire to be, like the 19th century novelists say, the book of life. They're about the classic themes of literature, about love and hate and fear and desire and mystery and emotion and adventure. But beyond that there are essentially also books about books about writing about reading about w- what it means about storytelling about the very mechanics the architecture of storytelling about literary devices about genre about all these things about how all these things work and 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 what they try to communicate is this joy the wonder of how much pleasure you can have with a book in your hands and 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 about the, the beauty of literature the beauty of, of, of the words themselves and, and and they try to be strong structure like that, and the prose uh, aspires to, to work as a piece of music that is orchestrated, that pays a lot of attention to timber, to color, to detail, to, to, to orchestration, to counterpoint, to all these elements. And I think this is one of the things that, that, that these books try to communicate to readers, because they are books about books, and they have writers and readers and booksellers and editors and publishers and people who love books and people who hate them and, and try to burn them and destroy them. And all of this is, is centered around this cemetery of forgotten books. This, this great, fantastic labyrinth of,
0: of a library that is at the heart of the, of the four novels. You know, for me, the act of reading and then remembering reading is very much the same as the act of experiencing life and remembering life. And I think that these books are largely about memory. Early on in The, the Prisoner of Heaven, Daniel Samper's father says that he sets up a little Christmas decoration in the window to attract customers. And he says, this is for children and those who have learned the art of forgetting and could still believe. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a really interesting aspect. This is kind of what these books are about and what reading is about, in a sense.
1: This is one of the central themes, I would say, of the four novels, Memory. Because um, I think that in many ways we are what we remember and 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 actually the, the the cemetery of forgotten books is a metaphor is a visual metaphor not just for forgotten books but for forgotten ideas for forgotten people for for all those things that make us human that define our our identity and that we tend to forget, we tend to, to live on the on the side of the road as we advance to nowhere <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. And and I remember this this notion intrigued me. And the notion that if we are what we remember, the less we remember, the less we are. If we don't know where we're coming from, we don't really know even where we are, where we're getting to. And 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 this is one this is one of the reasons why why the theme of memory, historical memory, personal memory, the thing of how the past, how how the sins of the fathers are revisited Upon the sons, how everything we do has a moral consequence. How the choices we make in life shape who we are, and and the way we're going to affect others, and the way we're going to affect the world. This is an ongoing theme, in in here and in
0: in this book. You know, too, that the because of the way you constructed the series and the way we see the story from different uh, perspectives, it makes me think too that about how stories can be revised by different. You know, we and, you know, by the author as they're writing and by by you in terms of the way you created these different perspectives on the same events. And we do the same thing to our memories too. I think so. I think that one of the things
1: that is very interesting about storytelling, storytelling lies at the heart of our very, essence is a very nature thing we as human beings can only understand or express that can be put in a language it can be a verbal language can be the language of numbers of science of music or but we need a code we or need a narrative a code, species or narrative species we are and actually we even our brain works in, in sequential uh... Um, episodes. We we only absorb information or myth or emotions through a sequence of, of, of events, so it's through a little story. And that's what evolutionary psychology uh, teaches us, that our brain to just to absorb anything requires this kind of a story structure in which one thing leads to another in the language of science, in the language of music, in the language of words, anything. So it, it's very much how our brains are wired. It's how it works. So I think it's very interesting when we are creating a piece of literature which takes language and aspires to to, to take storytelling to a point in which becomes something something beyond purely a game it's something uh, an element of beauty of knowledge or of playfulness. And to take this into account and to realize how we are thinking, how we think about ourselves, how we understand the world, how we define our identities, how we define our moral choices, the the, the things that shape us as we are, the thing that shape the world, that it's outsider. And, and it, it's because we created it. That's the reason it is. It is. And, and how we Get to that point is through these narrative of structures, and we create myths and we create religion and we create beliefs and we create many things a story about ourselves. We tell this, we reconstruct the story of our lives, of our identity. We justify our choices. We try to understand who we are, who the other people are through stories. And and this is a very interesting thing. And I think another of the themes that these that, that books try to tackle is that how we, how we tend to create our own reality and that's why this kind of multi-angle, this multi-perspective way of building the story allows us to deconstruct the same events and see from the perspectives of many different characters in which they all think they're telling us the truth. That is their truth. They're not trying to deceive us. They think that this is what happened to them. This is what's happening. But suddenly you just switch the angle and you start seeing at the same events from the perspective of another character. And you realize that the story is not the same for this other character. And for a third character, is another another. Yet another story. And it's very interesting to involve the reader in this kind of deconstruction of the story. So so, so the reader becomes also one more character into display and has fun with all the, the adventure and the mystery and all these things and the action of all this on all these elements, but always seen from all these different perspectives.
0: Now th- this third book in this series is full of plot and and it's told in a light voice events move fast Mm -hmm. and it's an interesting to just as a reader to look at these different books whereas the first book was full of character and love and joy and the second book was dark and gnarly you know for a book that's set in Barcelona in the Mm -hmm. 50s it reminded me more than anything else of the movie Alien Mm -hmm. it was dark and gnarly Mm -hmm. and there were little things in the dark that whatever your imagination could put there was worth. Yeah. In reality. Well,
1: one of the things I also wanted to do with his novels is even though they are related and they are interconnected, is each one of them was going to have its own personality. Mm-hmm. And each one of them has what I call the resident writer or the resident storyteller. is the writer inside the tale, you know? And in the case of Shadow of the Wind, I thought, you know what could be really cool is if we're reading about this book written by a certain Julián Carax, this mysterious novelist who disappeared. Then I felt, you know, that the Shadow of the Wind actually should read as a novel by Julian Carax. Then when we go to The Angel's Game, which is this kind of alien, gothic, sinister, dark, monstrous creature of a book that scares people away, I felt, you know... It, there's a writer inside the story who's the protagonist is then and as this guy who writes this kind of over the top Grand Guignol Victorian Gothic serials and it's a cursed man, is a man who's losing his sanity and he's trying to holding on into his life and put it on paper as it as, as reality is decomposing in front of him. And so I felt, you know, what could really be cool is if this book felt, you know, this memoir of this character felt as one of his books. So it has this character almost, you know, of a claustrophobic gothic psychological nightmare in which we do have this diabolical elements this very heavy atmosphere that yes can remind us of alien which is just a fantastic outer space gothic mm-hmm. you know that even today almost for 30 years it kicks the ass of tons of the movies that are being made because you see it's just a joy how well it's done how well it's a stage and and, and the angel screen pretty much goes up that alley and tries to absorb that kind of aesthetic and then in the prisoner of heaven we have another complete turn because the resident storyteller here is a character we met in Shadow of the Wind which is Fermín Romero de Torres which was this picaresque character which is this beggar who many people say he's crazy and that became the the, the main character Danielle's kind of best friend and protector And in here we're going to find out that that actually Fermin has kept a secret from his best friend, from Daniela, and from us. And he's been sitting on this terrible secret for many years until circumstances force him. He has to reveal it. And he's living his own really terrible nightmare because he doesn't want to open the Pandora box of the secret which is going to lead us into really the heart of darkness of what lies inside the stories. But by the nature of this being Fermin's story, the story in which we learn who he is, how he became the man he is, the book very much has his personality, his voice, and therefore compared, for instance, with The Angels' Game, it's much more It's lighter, it's faster, it's much more humorous and, and luminous because it has that thing, it has the voice of Fermin. And I thought that... The real interesting thing with this book would 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 be to have this 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 different tales that are obviously are part of, of of a greater thing, but each one of them has a personality, a different personality, there's a structure around the boys that is telling you
0: the story. For all of that, Vermin's voice is light and it is filled with humor the events that take place in this novel are just about as dark if not darker than those in The Angel's
1: Game they are but, but Fermini is the master of making lemonade when when life throws at him lemons the size of Texas <laughs> you know it's like okay deal with this crap and is a man who always is trying to he's struggling to be a better man that 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 life allows him to be he's somebody who makes a very clear choices that when maybe The rest of us would say, you know, in the case that life was giving us these cards, we would play them differently. And maybe we wouldn't strive to be uh, a decent person because we would say, you know what the heck, mm, I don't care, I'm going to gonna take my revenge in the world. Well, Fermin is is a different man. He wants to be a, a decent per- person, and he tries to, to, to do good for those around him, and he, he sacrifices himself, and, he, and he, he is a good person. He is a good heart, and this is this communicates through the story because even though the circumstances and, and there are many things that happen in the prisoner of heaven that are terrible, and you know, in many ways, he goes to hell and back, he comes back from the dead, and, and, and his experiences are terrible, he is always trying to make the best out of it and to survive and to help others and to come with a little bit of light in this huge universe
0: of darkness. Your prose is so amazingly chameleonic across these books. The grand storytelling style of The Shadow of the Wind, which is, uh, I mean, the title is reminiscent of Gone with the Wind. The story Mm -hmm. is reminiscent of Great Expectations, although it's nothing like either of those books. The Angel's Game with its dark, gothic, gnarly, uh, self-decomposing mind. This guy who, uh, in the story, This Prisoner of Heaven light and fun, talk about developing that prose style, because it must take you a while to become, you're a different person. Mm -hmm. I try to, uh, one of the things I wanted,
1: because since these books to me are books, among many things, about books, about reading, about writing, about what it means, about language, about storytelling, about how, how stories are a structure, I thought it would be interesting to try to write a set of novels that combine all genres, that combine all possible literary devices, all techniques in one, because that's what they are all about. They're about the, 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 the act of literature, what it means, what it's coming from. And so it's always, I think it, it's a game with the reader in which we're trying to incorporate all these elements, all, all the tricks in the books and more, you know, get, get them in there. So this is an aspect in which I try to work very carefully and I put a lot of effort in trying to provide all these different elements because I think that part of the, the, the great experience of reading comes from the texture of the language. You may be aware of not, but stories are not about what they are about stories are about how they are told mm. this is what really is about it and this is what literature is about and storytelling in general is all about the staging the language the imagery the sounds the texture the pacing and 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 each one of these books is very carefully elaborated in this sense. So, so they, they communicate, they bring this tactile experience to to the reader and almost a sensorial experience in which the book itself disappears from your hand. You are no longer holding a piece of paper and you're actually inside the story and you're feeling the smells, the sound, you see the light, you're walking in these streets so and you're along with the characters and, and this. And I think this is interesting to work with, Because I think nowadays we know so much about storytelling. When you think about these books pay homage to the grand novelists of the 19th century, but when you think about the, the readers of Dickens or Dumas or Tolstoy, these were readers that had never really been exposed to many different storytelling languages. They have never seen a movie or TV, read a comic book, seen seen advertising, seen photography, you know, seen many different codes, languages that we use to communicate things, to create messages. While nowadays, readers even if, if they're not aware of it, they're extremely sophisticated. They have all these little decoding machines in their brain that are able to tackle and, and to absorb a lot of different information at the same time without even thinking about it. So I think, so I thought, you know, it would be really interesting to try to deconstruct the classical model of the 19th century novel, these grand stories of hatred and love and, and romance and mystery and adventure, these kind of very thrilling stories, and try to construct it again using all the things we've learned about storytelling, mostly through the 20th century, which is, it would come from, from anything, from the language of film, from modernist fiction, from genre fiction, from comic books, from Japanese anime, from any kind of experiment, literary experimentation. We know so much about how to build these things, about the engineering of literature and storytelling, that I think it's a great thing to try to incorporate all these things back into, into the novels
0: to provide the reader with the most intense and rewarding reading experience. That's so interesting. I mean, that you perceive, I've never thought about it that way, but that through the 20th century, we've talked, you know, we all are aware of how we developed electronic technology and, you know, uh, mechanical technology and rockets and trains and the Internet and all this other stuff. But the technology that's made the biggest difference and is completely invisible to us is communication technology. I guess it would be a semiotics. It is. It's language. It's ideas.
1: It's how we use language, how we use codes to express things, to think, to, to, to communicate. This this has also advanced enormously through the 20th century. And, and a lot of people have brought a lot of, 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 of thought and art and, 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 and really interesting things to it and we can learn from that, you know, sometimes we feel like we can talk, I think, about the technology of storytelling. Mm -hmm. It's not like because storytelling is made of paper and ink, it seems like it doesn't evolve. Actually it evolves a lot and and precisely because it's an abstraction. Uh, Languages are abstractions, they can evolve without the limitations sometimes in in which other technologies face because it's, it's like the language of music music has evolved through the the centuries. And music is is a mathematical abstraction. In many ways, it's the collusion of mathematics and poetry, you know? And it expresses all those things that cannot be expressed in any other languages. But music has evolved enormously, and it's an extremely technical language, and it's very complex in its nature. Even though when we absorb it, we have absolutely no idea about it. Most people listen to music and have absolutely no idea. In the same way that you can look at the Cathedral of Cologne, and you have no idea about the mathematics that makes such place possible, but they are there, otherwise it would fall on top of you and crush you. But you see all this stone and say, Oh my God, which is exactly the reaction they wanted you to to have when you walk into a cathedral to say, Oh my God and you're humbled by this presence of godly. But actually you're humbled by the mathematics and engineering and art and design. And I think that all these things are are very important and i think that literature or language has evolved enormously and if we look around and we dig we'll find that this technology of storytelling has evolved tremendously and can be used in the same way that nowadays we have gizmos which are kind of very handy because we can walk around with something that allows us to stay in touch with the world and send emails and, and see movies in, in a portable device which may have sound like science fiction a few years ago all this is made by technology, by all the things we have learned through through many years. So, you know, the same applies to storytelling and to literature, I think. And, and we need to actually incorporate these things, not to make it difficult for the reader, quite the opposite. In the same way, sometimes, you know, you sit in front of a computer, one of those brand new Macintosh computers, you say, wow, how cool, look at all these things it's doing. You don't really know how it's doing all the stuff it does. You just use it and enjoy it. And, it's, and, and I think the same thing can can apply to literature. You just can, you know, swim into a piece of literature as if it were water and you're just enjoying it and just just receiving the pleasure of it. But the elaboration, the technical elaboration of it, you know, we can learn a lot about, about that and apply it. I think we should to keep novels and literature and
0: storytelling alive. One of the things you keep alive in this book, and I I think that's really interesting. This is a, a historical novel, and it's and because it's so immersive and involving, it's somewhat easy to forget that at times. But it's also about a very specific period of history and a very uh, specific event in history: the Spanish Civil War. And I'd like you to just talk a little bit about that, because in America, that's something we don't think about much. But the vision you give it of it in this book mm-hmm. is terrorizing, and very uh, intense.
1: Well, this pretty much, I think, this is a book that takes us to the darkest period in, in, in European history, which is mid-20th century, not just in Spain, but in the whole of Europe. In Spain, some, some events could maybe advanced for a few years but you know through the 20s and the 30s you could see that Europe was walking toward an abyss and and, and, and almost some kind of armageddon an end of the world was looming ahead and exactly that's what happened by by 1945 you know the end of the world actually has already happened and it happened in Europe in in by the end of World War II in this case, what we do in The Prisoner of Heaven is is we have two different timelines. We start the story right after The Shadow of the Wind ended and we meet the same characters, Fermin, Daniel, Bea, Mr. Sempera, the bookstore there. And we find them. And then the story is going to take us back to 1939 and 1940. What happens? The Spanish Civil War began in 1936 and ended in 1939, which was right when World War II was starting in the rest of Europe. And at that time, most people or everybody thought that given the way things were going, Europe was going to become some kind of fascist playground for decades, and this seemed like it was a very grim outlook. It seemed like it was the end of all, that it was become some kind of nightmare terror state. Because of this, when the Franco regime won the Spanish Civil War, they felt that they could act with impunity. So quite often the worst of the war happened right after the war, the repression, the revenge of those who won, who felt that they could do whatever they wanted that they could kind of clean up all of their enemies because nobody was going to history was never going to ask them they would be unaccountable for all the stuff they were doing and and there there was a period of time in which the repression was terrible and the things that were going on were terrible what happened is that of course by 1941 1942 i think it was pretty obvious to everybody that germany was not going to win the war it was a matter of time, it was a matter of industrial might, it was a strategic thing in which, sooner or later, Germany would lose the war, and, and, and as it did three years later. Uh, and by that time, the Franco regime, Franco was an extremely practical dictator. He was never really an ideological man. He was more of a power-hungry mm, psychopath. He was a man who just wanted power. He wanted to be in control. He would take the ideologies and the aesthetics of different movements to dress up his, his movement. But, but he didn't really, he was just he was a military leader who wanted to be in control. So when he realized that his potential allies, uh, Hitler, Mussolini, were kind of falling down, down the abyss they had created, he kind of switched and made new friends. And he was always a very practical man. He's a dictator that died in his bed 40 years later, which is unprecedented in many cases. And certainly in Europe, you know, he died by the mid-70s. And, and his regime stayed there in power with the help of many other nations, and and many other powers in the world. So I think but by then it had changed very much. But just these few years in which they felt they could act with impunity and they would kind of take their revenge on their enemies uh, were terrible. And we are taking to that time and we see how it worked and the things that were going on at the time, which are kind of a mirror of what was, was going on in Europe at the time. And then, of course, we move on and we see how the situation evolved and how a lot of the people that had to do with these extreme circumstances survive and how the world we know today, which seems sometimes if we don't think about it, and we tend not to think about it, we tend not to think a lot about the things that have gone down on, uh, during the during the 20th century, but suddenly it seems like the world of the prosperity and, and the relative peace that we've experienced through some, a few decades at least, would have seemed unthinkable at the time because probably it seemed like it was the end of the world. It was an extent of destruction unprecedented in human history, before or after, and the and extent of the horrors. Uh, were something just just mind-boggling, and we tend to forget, of course, and we tend not to think of those things. And it's now it seems that for many people, World War II is something you know, it's Saving Private Ryan, it's something that they see in the movies, and it's about a bunch of guys who are very heroic. And but it seems like it was the biggest event in human history, and it was a terrible tragedy. What is your family history? I was born in 1964. Mm -hmm. That means, like for most people of my generation, my parents were children during the Spanish Civil War, and my grandparents were kind of directly involved or were adults at the time, so so they really suffered the consequences of this. And I think as is usually the case in these events in very traumatic wars or civil wars, people tend to keep silent about it. So in many ways, you absorb the things, you absorb this collective memory, but rarely directly. I I don't remember, I don't recall my parents ever really talking at length about the Spanish Civil War. They would, my mother maybe would mention uh, things that when she was a child, she remember how her parents took her out of the city of Barcelona. took her to a small village in a remote valley where they thought, it would be safer for the children and 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 kind of vague recollection of what's was going on, but but in the way how how a child would see the war from afar, my grandparents, who were directly involved in there, my grandparent, uh, my grandfather was was in a concentration camp and and he really had a really hard time for it. he would never mention anything that had happened. My grandmother would never mention anything. During the war, and I think this this silence that some generations adopt is very. I've noticed that in Europe, in many elderly people who lived through World War II, they just won't talk about it. I think it's a way in which people are able to survive and move on. There are certain things that, if you have experienced them firsthand. Uh, you just cannot try to explain them or communicate to people who cannot understand because they were not there, they were not under these extreme circumstances and and and, and you feel it's it 's pointless to tell them and and you want to forget them. And and memory is very selective, and, and we try, we tend to remember what we need to remember, what we want to remember, and there are things that we just suppress because they're too painful, they're too hard, and maybe sometimes we don't want to look at ourselves, and, and and consider the things we've done and the choices we've made, and and I think this is a very interesting thing when you see at the generations that were involved. Nowadays, of course, most of the people who were adults at the time of the Spanish Civil War, or even World War II, are passing away. And, and now we have a generation who is starting to be kind of on, also elders who were children back then and have a very different recollection. And at some point, it will be gone too. And, and, and a historical memory, once again, will be lost because we don't try to make a lot of effort to understand where we're coming from. Therefore, we tend to repeat or the mistakes that others made before us because we are like them. We we'd like to forget
0: the important things in life. Could you talk about doing the kind of research to create the, the scenes and recreate the city? And I'm wondering how much your own experience informed that or how much of your own experience or your parents' or grandparents' experience you thought you might be discovering it and uncovering as you created it in literature?
1: Well, I've always been—I—I felt that I've always been doing research. As I was—I was born in the city of Barcelona. I was raised there. I lived there most of my life. So it's—it's—it's it's, it's my hometown. It's my—it's these are my roots. This where I'm coming from, and I feel that I'm a product of it, like it or not. You know, I'm a product. Barcelona is my mother, so to speak. You know, and and with, like with all mothers, you have a conflicting relationship. You know. And uh, I think I've been always absorbed. I've been very interested in the history of the city. and There are many things that you absorb just as a child growing in a place. You're just a sponge, and you're constantly absorbing things that maybe for many years just keep marinating in your in your mind, and at some point you will use, you will try to understand. And on top of that, of course, I've been always studying and trying to learn as much as I could about the history, both of my city, my country, about Europe, about the world, and especially this time period, which I think it's critical because it's the birth of the modern world, which is the, the period that goes from the Industrial Revolution to the end of World War II. I'm always being fascinated by this. I think it's such a huge ride of history. It's the point in which humanity, after many years of mystery and darkness, many centuries of, of mystery, finally seems to be at the gates of promise, the promise of well-being, of science, of progress, of education, of, of, of health. You know, many people used to die very, very young for, during centuries because there were diseases we could not do nothing about. Uh, there was huge ignorance, illiteracy, uh, horror, wars, misery, poverty. And, and suddenly it seems like by the end of the 19th century, science and progress, many things bring us to a point which seems like many human beings, at least in the Western world, are going to be able to live better lives, fuller lives, that there's going to be less pain, less ignorance, It's going to be a promise for humanity. You say, you know, you pay your dues to many centuries, so maybe now you're going to get a shot at a decent life, at a decent existence. And right then, when we have these things in our hands, actually what we bring is the greatest horror, the greatest destruction in history. And I think that this ride, this betrayal of humanity, uh... That, that is surrounded by this wonderful, also rise and fall in the arts, in cultures, in architecture, in many things. And I think it's just fascinating. It's a period that is so rich that it's that it's a, it's a treasure cult. You can just get in there and find so much stuff. And I think it defines, it's a perfect metaphor for, for humanity. And I tend to go back to that period because I think it explains everything about us, explains everything about the world and especially about our modern world today, I think, because everything is born there. We can trace almost everything that is going on in our lives today is in our life to this time period in which all these things are forged, are created. And, and therefore, I've always been trying to, to learn to, and, and of course, you're in, in a way, I'm, I'm constantly doing research. And then I'm, I try to be very careful with this information, how I use it in fiction, because I think there's a danger sentence and you see this a lot in historical fictions, in which an author may have done a lot of research, and then you know he or she decides that since you've accumulated all these facts, you're gonna throw them at the reader as if they were bullets. You know, you're kind of machine gunning people with data, and and that which may work in a in, in, in another context in a work of of history, or journalism, or social studies. In literature, in fiction doesn't work, because uh, you need to be very careful. You need first to learn a lot and know a lot about what you're going to talk, but not because you're going to use it, because what you're going to try to do is instrumentalize, internalize all this knowledge, and create narrative elements that have that inside. So when the reader experiences the story. The reader subconsciously is going to absorb all these things that allow you as a reader to suddenly understand and feel the period, the conditions, what was going on, how life was at that time, how it, what was the texture of everyday life, which just pure cold facts won't give you. You may read something, very detailed descriptions of, of how, I don't know, Victorian London was, and you say, okay... The, and you know, all the number of people who died of this disease and the number of blah, 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 and you need know, all these statistics. It doesn't come. You read a paragraph of Charles Dickens, and suddenly all these images, all these textures, all these feelings, all these emotions come to you. Is Charles Dickens giving you the almanac of what happened in 1880 something? No, he's giving you literature. But he's internalizing all these things. And in many ways when we think about the Victorian period, we don't really know anything about it. But our notions or images or first impressions come from the creations of of artists like Charles Dickens because they did this. They internalize the period and they use it in a narrative way. And I think this is the effective way in which information and research works in literature, not in throwing facts. So you don't need to know anything about this this world or if let's say you venture into the prisoner of heaven and say, Well, I don't know anything about Spain or Barcelona or the the history of Europe in the in, in mid twentieth century. Well, you don't have to. You don't have to know anything about Middle Earth to read The Lord of the Rings. You know, it's all there for you. They say, but, but I don't know a- anything about dwarves and dragons and gigantic spiders and, and things and orcs. You say, don't worry. You know, you don't need to have a master's degree and, and, and little goblins and creatures like that to enjoy talk, you know, to enjoy many other things. You know, it, it, that's the part that's a miracle of literature. Everything is in there for you, and this world's come alive from you. And suddenly you realize that. You learn a lot about this period and this places, not because that is the point of the book. The point of the book is that you have a great time and that you are fascinated by the characters and you enjoy their adventure. But as a result, you always end up absorbing a lot of information. Have you travel to another world, which is much more similar to yours than you may think?
0: It's a, it's a, uh, uh, you're you're a world builder then, like like the the classic science fiction writers. Well, I think all
1: literature. Is uh, the concept of world building is usually used for fantasy or for science fiction? Sometimes it it's a is a word you you see referred to when people are talking about video games or things like that because it seems like it's something that you use to create a world that is completely fictional that it's a pure fantasy. But all literature is fantasy. All literature is a product of imagination. We, We establish these boundaries in which, you know, from here to here, this is called fantasy fiction. And here from here, it's mystery. And this is a thriller. And this is a romance. And this is a social novel. Well, all of these lines, all of these boundaries are completely imaginary. You know, and and they're pretty recent in a way. When we go back into the history of literature, we go back to, to Shakespeare, for instance. In the Shakespeare dramas and tragedies, you know, there are ghosts, there are murder, there is intrigue, there are supernatural elements, there are social commentary. And it's all there together. It's just storytelling. These are just devices of a storytelling that you may use. Nowadays, it seems we need to put them and label them, put them in different parts of bookstores and say, and then, then you find readers saying, no, oh, I will never read science fiction. If there's a flying saucer on the cover, I'm not in. Or if there's a guy with a gun or something or people who feel and but all these boundaries, if we think about it, they're just purely imaginary. It's just literature. And, you know, the only real difference is if it's well done or not. And if it's about, I don't know, people who travel into other worlds or people who travel to, to Ohio, uh, it doesn't matter. It's all literature. It's all word. It's all smoke and mirrors, ink and paper. It's the magic of storytelling.
0: There's two genres. Good books and bad books.
1: <laughs> After that, well, that's what Duke Ellington used to say about music. If you think about the music of Duke Ellington, say, well, what do you call this? Jazz, Swim? It's classical music. It's American classical music. Well, it's music. Some of it is of enormous complexity. And I say, how do you label? Why do you have to label it? I mean, it's mm, who cares? It's music, and as Duke Ellington said, there's good and bad, you know, and that's all you need to know, really.
0: Well, I would I'm putting yours in the in the good 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 box. Well, I'm thank, thankful for that. Now, one of the things I think that is uh, so interesting about this book is the humor that you bring to it. And what I really liked was the way that Fairman tells his stories. There's a a certain kind of, of sweetness behind all of it you can tell he loves everything he's talking about he's very sarcastic at the same time and he recounts events that are often horrific yet you can kind of take take it in without being repelled and I think part of that has to do with overall the way your characters like the world they live in and you like both the characters and the world you've created Well, in many ways, I think when you're
1: writing fiction, you're exploring your own inner world, and all these characters, or most of them, are just a part of yourself. You're know, you playing around with your brain, with the things that you find inside of your mind and your imagination. And in this case, yes, it's true. I think Fermin, as a a protagonist, Fermin is many things, but he's an homage to the picaresque tradition and literature. He's a character who plays the role of the madman in the tale. You know, madmen in the tales are always allowed to speak the truth because since we label them uh, mad, say, well, it doesn't matter they are mad. They can say whatever they want, so they speak the truth while the rest of, of, of the world is devoted just to bullshit or whatever, you know, to lying through their teeth or to lying to themselves. Uh, I think for me, which pretty much is the moral center of these novels. Is a character that in his own flamboyant and humorous and, and sometimes over-the-top way of expressing himself uh, is always speaking the truth and is a sincere man, is an honest man, and, and he's the moral compass of these stories. That's why even though he's sometimes remembering or referring to us, uh, events are horrific. There are terrible things that have happened. He always brings this element of sweetness, of humor, of light to everything because that's his nature. And he tries to reinterpret things and he tries to find the good even in the bad. And he tries to redeem the world and redeem himself. And in many ways he redeems us through his eyes, through, through the way he looks at the world in, in seeing that it's, at the end of the game it's just up to us sometimes we may prevent ourselves from taking action or from, from because we think that, that, that there's no point that something it's hopeless but for me it shows us that really it's up to us what we do with the world what we do with our lives and that if we really want a better world we start with ourselves and then you know the good will spread we don't need to go to save the world at the other end, you know, of the at the end of the world, things that are invisible there. So no, no, we you you know you can start around with your family, with your with your partner, with your friends, with whatever and, and, and the world will change, you know,
0: one person at a time. I I love too that as we read this book, the way you play with plot, you do some fantastic things with plot. Both within the book and within the universe that you've created in these three books, and I'm wondering how much of this is scripted in advance. I mean, how are you building this—the Gothic cathedral of these four novels? Is it? Did you build the external parts first, or are you did you just start in a corner and start building out? Well, I think you have to veil that in many ways, as you always
1: say, that a novel is a cathedral of words. So, so cathedrals are built. Of course, first you. You may have a general design of what is that you want to build, but then you need to figure out the mathematics and the engineering to really, and, and each one of these things is so detailed that it requires many layers of planning. So the, the way I'm working with these books, and of course, I, I, I think I need to know what I'm doing uh, if I'm going to get anywhere. I think there's sometimes there's a kind of fiction that can be written in a very introspective way in which... The author is more or less a reader of his own work. You're just getting at the stuff that you don't know where it's coming from, and sometimes you just go back afterwards and try to shape it into some acceptable, viable form. These books don't work that way. I think these work. These books are very complexly built, and the stories are complicated, and the plot is complicated, and all these things need to need to match and need to work and need to be uh, perfectly assembled. So I think. When I'm starting working on one of these books, I need to plan in advance everything I'm going to do. What happens is that, of course, no matter how much, how detailed your plans are, what you find is that when you're at, at the at the bottom of a problem, you, you descend all these layers and you, you suddenly realize it's this tiny little screw that was supposed to hold a piece that holds another piece that... You could not foresee the problems this tiny little screw is going to give you when you're making general plans or even detailed plans. And, and then you, you need to come with a new solution because you realize that, of course, it was impossible to realize that kind of micro little problem. But the solutions quite often tend to create ripple effects, because you realize you made a mistake in your calculations. You thought that the entire cathedral was going to halt, and then there's something the size of a mouse dropping that actually it it, put, it threatens the whole structure. And you say, criminy, oh my God, You know, I thought that I was doing the right thing. And then you realize that you made a mistake, so you need to change everything. And... The way I'm working is even though I have a very detailed uh, plan and idea of what I'm doing, I'm also open to change because I feel that this entire story is very organic and that no matter how much you plan, no matter how much you outline, you're going to change it a thousand times, and I do. And I keep it open, and I keep changing things, but always planning ahead. What I don't go is, you know, running around like a chicken with a head cut, like, oh, okay, I'm going to run around and see where I end up. I think that I'm going to end up anywhere. I need to have a plan. I need to have a journey. And I need to go where I start, when I end, and what all the stops. But even between those stops, a lot of stuff can happen. And a lot of stuff happens. And then you get... Different ideas while you're working on something. When you descend into the details of things, you realize that there's a better idea than the one you had, and, and you want to use it. And, and then you need to make more changes, so you make them. And, and you keep working, and you keep hammering at it and rewriting, and rewriting, and rewriting in circles around until that thing is what you really set out to do. What does your workspace look like? My workspace, I have two different workspaces. I have an office in, in Barcelona, which is where I work, an office studio. And uh, and I have another one in Los Angeles. And 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 I work in either or sometimes I work uh, uh, I, I write a book between both places or more in one or more in the other, it depends. And essentially I need a peaceful place. I get distracted easily. I think all writers are constantly look we have a this device in our brains installed there that it's 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 a machine that is looking for excuses not to work. It, it it's kind of excuse the texture. and it goes beep, beep, beep and it's like one of those Wi-Fi that you know, those things that are constantly scanning for Wi-Fi, whatever you are. And and so if there's any excuse, you know, wait a minute, there's a pencil there that it's not properly sharpened. We cannot work today. We need to fix the this thing or the, any other miserable excuse not to work. So since I'm aware of that, that is the procrastinating nature of writers. So I try to isolate myself in a place in which I have some peace of mind. And I'm surrounded by the things I like, which mostly is music. I love music. So in my studio, there's, there's the, the desk in which I work, in which I don't really sit for a long time. I tend to stand up and, and, and walk around the studio like a caged animal. And then I talk to myself, and then I sit again, and then I rewrite, and then I go back. And then I go to the other end of the studio where there's a piano, and then I play the piano. Then I come back to the computer, and then I read a paragraph, and I say, that's crap. And I throw it away, and then I rewrite it again. And this is the way I'm working. I'm I'm constantly thinking about it. And sometimes I think you're even working while you're not in the studio. You go for a walk. You're doing other things. While I'm working on a book, I'm living inside of the story. And, and when I get out of there into the real world, it feels like a very strange thing. It's like coming out of a spaceship and looking at all these aliens waving their tentacles at you. And you say, like, where the hell am I? I just step out of my book and this feels really bizarre. And it, this goes on for, for a long time until I'm finished. And then I return to reality. And and I, to me, it's the only way of working on on the story. So... In and, and in my workspace is what there are thousands of CDs, there's always a decent sound system because I tend to listen to music a lot. There's just computers, there's a lot of different things and there are tons of dragons. I collect dragons and, and people know that I like dragons, so sometimes they give it, so there are dragons everywhere hanging from the ceiling, sitting on top of the computer. So all these little creatures that pay me company. And and that's more or less it. It's just place that it's quiet in which I kind of cut off the world so I can concentrate in my own fictional world and then there's also a sofa in which sometimes I just lay down to read and I fall asleep (laughs) in there which is embarrassing but sometimes happens and so it's just I think a conventional workspace with light silence, quiet and, and lots of music How far are you into the fourth volume if at all? Well, I'm, I'm there. One of the things I'm, I've noticed over the years is I started publishing books over 20 years ago, and when I started doing this, or even though I've been writing since I was a child, but let's say I've, I've been making a living as, as a working writer for over 20 years now, and the more, the older I get, uh, I realize that I tend to spend more time thinking about what I'm going to do. And then when it comes to execution, I'm much faster. Mm -hmm. When I was beginning to to ride, this was the opposite. I would spend a long time trying to execute the things I had thought about. I think this comes from experience, from from knowing, uh, from learning many things down the way in, in your own craft, in your own job. And so right now, sometimes I realize that it's better if I really think everything out, and, and, and I'm, I'm very I'm very conscious of all, of all this, the mathematics and the problems and the implications of everything before I start building, that I'd rather know very well what I'm going to build before I set the first stone. So when I'm putting the stones in there, I really know what I'm doing. I don't want to be doing experiments in which I have to dismantle everything and, and go in. So right now I'm really deep into the thinking stage of that, And I think I'll be able to really get to the execution part pretty soon. So you're marinating. I'm marinating, yeah, like a piece of a steak. That sounds good. (laughs) It's like one of those chicken
0: marinara or something like that. That's me. I've been speaking with Carlos Ruiz Safon. His newest novel is The Prisoner of Heaven. Thank you for joining me, Carlos. Thank you. Your pleasure.